Hey, this is Matt Sorum, Guns N' Roses and Velvet Revolver, and you're listening to the Rock Solid Podcast. to be here. This is small town music. This is big town music. He's ahead of his time, you know, but he can't use it. If only he could prove it. Well, tomorrow's just a song away. A song away. A song away. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Rock Solid, the comedy podcast for all things music, both new and classic. I'm Pat Francis. And joining me in the Zoom room to promote his upcoming autobiography entitled Double Talk and Jive, the true rock and roll stories from the drummer of Guns N' Roses, The Cult, and Velvet Revolver, please welcome one of my favorite drummers, Matt Sorum. How you doing, Matt? Cool, man. Wow, that was a nice intro. Well, thank you. You deserve it. (laughs) All those bands, all that great music, come on. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a wild ride. It's told in the book, Double Talk and Jive. (laughs) Now, before we get started, Matt, I want to talk about the really important stuff. I want to say congratulations on the birth of your new daughter. Do I look tired yet? You do look a little tired. You have that you have that dad thing. But I didn't know if that was because of your nonstop book promotion or because of the baby. Uh, We had four feedings last night. Uh, I was on two of them and uh multiple diapers but man i can get those diapers on and off in no time <laughs> you're, you're like a roadie now you're you're the the baby's roadie all this year training all this time in the training uh field you know did not prepare me for any of this <laughs> <laughs> is this a, is this your first child so far, so good. No one's showing up at my doorstep. And if they did, they'd be old enough to support themselves. So that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very exciting. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a father of two and they're 16 and 20. So I, I still remember what it was like to be uh, to have an infant. So again, congratulations. I know. I feel like she's grown so fast. Uh, she's just over two months and we're like, oh, we're going to miss when she's this small. <laughs> and uh, she's almost out of her first phase of clothes, three, uh, zero to three months, right? It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, we got so many uh, amazing gifts from friends. And it was like, wow, people love babies, man. They do love babies. People love them. <laughs> <laughs> as long as they can just come and visit and then leave, they love them. Yeah, but I've always heard that you love your own baby more than you love know, other babies. But I'm like, man, I've got so many people. Like, I'll put up one little picture of my baby, and it just goes mental. On so, and and you know, I'm like, am I pimping my kid out already? Is this cool? Or you know, I don't know. Well, they're if they're your friends, they're probably excited for you, Matt, because you waited so long uh, to have a baby. So they're probably just excited yeah. for you. They are. They are excited for me. They thought it would never happen, actually, I think, you know. Huh. And so, now it did. So yeah. you prove you prove them wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, let me ask you about the title of the book. Uh, it comes from a song written by Izzy Stradlin for Guns N' Roses from the Use Your Illusion 1 album. Why did you choose that title, Double Talk and Jive? Uh, just sort of rang true with me about sort of coming up through the Hollywood music business, the entertainment business. You know, working with the the kind of the backstory of what goes on behind the bands, 
you know, that, that Hollywood, Hey, I love you, babe. Kind of thing, <laughs> you know? Right. And then for a guy that's had sort of hills and valleys in his career, you know, I've seen the ups and downs of that. And, you know, the guy that just told you he loved you, babe, doesn't answer the phone anymore. So double talking jive was just sort of that, Hey babe, I love you. Um, and understanding, you know, that it, the book, you know, to where I am now, you know, there was a, a part of my life that I was pure rock and roll, pure entertainer all the time. The people that were around me were around me for the wrong reasons, probably mm-hmm. a lot of times. And, yeah. and now I just, you know, as you get older, you're like, man, none of that shit really even mattered except for that. It was a lot of fun. And, but those people, most of those people aren't here anymore, alive or dead. And yeah. And I'm, here I am with my family and, you know, you came through, you got through. Yeah. That's, so, that's, that's, that's Kyle uh, just kind of just popped out. And, <laughs> and Izzy was a guy that ended up walking away from the music business as well. Yeah. And uh, we had a really amazing time writing that song in the studio. That's one of the songs that was just pure magic. It went down on the first take. It was a jam. I remember him walking in and me and him messing around with the beat. And he had this like flamenco kind of kind of thing. And then Slash and Duff walked in from going across the street. And there, that's what you hear on the album. I remember thinking that represents the in the purest form what, what that band was about at that time. Yeah. I mean, I I love Izzy. I mean, he's he's the Keith Richards of Guns N' Roses for sure. I mean, so yeah. great. Just the songwriting, the the guitar playing, uh, not to take away from anyone else, but he just had, I don't know, he just had this dirty rock and roll thing that I love. Yeah, he was like, you know, he was, uh, he was about, he was, he was like the secret weapon. Right, for sure. He was the guy that had that secret touch that brought the, you know, and as the band, you know, kept changing and obviously I came in, you know, things were starting to evolve and change within the band. And I think he was the one last remaining part of that particular original lineup that, that held that, that part together, that trueness of the, of the band. And if you, a lot of people don't realize how important he was to those songs and early on the songwriting, especially Appetite for Destruction and then, and Use Your Illusion. So. Yeah. yeah. Very, very important in the songwriting. And, um, uh, well, since we're, we might as well, we'll just talk about Guns N' Roses now. I was going to, I was going to talk about it a little later, but you know, it's the title of the book. So let's get into it a little bit right now. The first time I ever heard Matt Sorum play drums, I'm sitting in a theater watching Terminator two judgment day. <laughs> and oh my God, you could be mine starts to play. I think that was a full two months before the album was going to drop. Yeah. And I mean, that just came thundering into the theater and that intro is still exhilarating 30 years on. I mean, just incredible. What an introduction to you in Guns N' Roses.
Yeah, thanks. It was, you know, the song used to just start on the top of the of the figure. It used to start as a it was almost kind of a sex pistols kind of group. Yeah. And I I was a big Terry Bazio fan. There's this drummer from Missing Persons, and then it's Frank sure. Zappa. Zappa, right. You could watch him and he'd do all this crazy stuff with his kick drum and his toms. And as a joke on the third take, I went to do that kind of thing. Uh-huh. And they and loved went, it. And I went into it and the band went like, whoa. And in those days, we recorded everything live. There was no like editing or Pro Tools or. Yeah. And Mike Klink goes, that's the one. <laughs> and I believe it was third take that, you know, we didn't do a lot of takes on those records because we were very well rehearsed. And we would go in the studio and we were just trying to capture the energy of the moment and. I remember I'd walk in the studio it'd be fourth or fifth take, and I'd say to Slash, I'd say, Let's do one more. He goes, You just want to suck the rock and roll right out of it, don't you? And I'd be like, Come, what are you talking about? I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, we can play it better, don't you? He's like, No, that feels right. It, it, it was for Slash and some of those guys, it was more about the way it felt than uh-huh. it being perfect. Okay. Didn't, have to, didn't have to be perfect. But it had to have the right intention, the right energy. And I remember when we did You Could Be Mine and we, we hit that. And you, you feel the song and there was no click tracks and it speeds up a little bit. The yeah. end. But it creates tension. And you go, wow. And you listen to, back to a lot of great bands way before us, even in the 70s. And you're like, oh, the tempos are moving around. But great. Right. Yeah, it's great. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's fantastic. Yeah. Now you're the new guy in the band, but it sounded like you fit right in. Like you didn't, um, you didn't hesitate to speak up if you had some ideas. Well, you know, they, they, they asked me to join, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, that was the first part of Asia. It's like, they want me in their band. And, you know, obviously I was in a band that they really respected the cult. And everything. Yeah. We, me and Slash and Duff were especially sort of like the core three guys that were always working together. And Izzy was, always a little bit quiet but he had his songs that he brought and we and we would just discuss things as we were rehearsing and i would say hey guys you know don't you think this is a little long (laughs) you know or something (laughs) why is it nine minutes you know (laughs) or like you know (laughs) i'm just gonna say it it's long it's really you know and they would go like whoa it's fine let's just leave it that way and that was that's how that band was we didn't sit down and try to like record some like hit for you know three minutes three and a half minutes even though we did have three minute songs that's right yeah we lived in the garden of eden and it just was what it was we didn't we didn't go into long ended discussions about it needed to be this way because gotcha you and know. then um and did, so did you realize that you were recording uh, the, a massively epic collection of songs at that point like did you guys know it was going to be two albums and 30 songs or did you or did you matt sorum think they were going to whittle that down to like 12 tunes yes i did <laughs> <laughs> so we you know we went to this little studio in the valley called mates rehearsal and we you know we had this board we used to write all the titles and we had working titles because axel hadn't written the lyrics yet axel didn't write a lot of the lyrics until some of the songs were recorded that's incredible and there were songs that had lyrics like Don't Cry. And then 
he had a really good idea of how he wanted to orchestrate November Rain. And he had to think he'd, he'd had that whole piece of music in his head. And uh, he played that with us. Uh, and anyway, when, when we got in there to record all this stuff, you know, here we are recording two songs a day, three songs a day. We would go across the street to this place called Crazy Girls and we would drink and, you know, watch the girls dance and stuff. And then we'd come back and Mike Klink would go, you guys just go home, see you tomorrow. You know, <laughs> you know, but he found us in certain states that worked for the music. We had a song called uh, She Ain't the First, which is kind of like a drunken pirate song. Yeah, it is. And we were drunk. We were very drunk. And <laughs> he said, go out, Sarah, go out in the middle of the room. Let's cut that track now. And it just has the right, it's loose. And we're just like, ah, you know. Rolling. One, two, three, one, two, three. Two, three, one, and I tried so hard just to get through to you. Your head's so far from of truth was it just to come on in the dark was it meant to last long I think you want your welcome honey I'll just sing you along as I sing you this song so, so anyway when we finished recording all that music and I've told this story before Axel walked in one day and was at a very famous studio, A&M Studios, Studio A, which is now called uh, Henson. Yes, Henson Studio. In those days, it was Herb Albert and Jerry Moss. Yep, A&M. A&M. Yeah. And we were in Studio A, which is made famous by We Are the World, Quincy Jones, in this big room. And Axel, there was a door that was almost like Star Trek. And it was a button. You would go, and it go, whoosh. It was like air door and Axel came in. I believe he had a couple of pretty girls with him. He walked in he was, and he announced that we were going to put out both albums. We were going to do, we were going to do all the songs. Okay. Wow. And he said, uh, we're going to release it all. And we went, what? We're going to put all the music out, but here's how we're going to do it. And he, he said, I want to do two separate records, but the same album cover in different colors. And use your illusion one and use your illusion two. And he showed us this piece of art that was by a guy named Gustavi out of New York. He was very kind of from the Andy Warhol school. And he had bought this piece of art. And uh, down in the very corner was this, this thinking man, kind of almost like a, uh, Michelangelo kind of thing and he said that's the album cover and he's it was a very small piece of this massive piece of art so we somehow figured out how to get that from Kastabi who was somebody I, I ended up meeting that guy and uh, licensed it or whatever we did and then Axel's reason for the two records was that he had worked at Tower Records as, as a younger guy and he understood that the records had to be in the bin so he could buy record and go into the bin 
like the old days when you would yeah, go. Yeah. I'm going to go over to yeah. the section. Yeah. Where, Shuffle through, look around. I'm going to go into section G. There's Guns N' Roses. Okay, cool. Because if it was a double album, it would have been up behind the cash register. It was over 20 bucks. They didn't put that stuff in the bin. So that was his first thought process. And then his second thought process is he could probably go back to David Geffen and renegotiate, which I believe they did. And, and then he had a really big vision about taking the band on the road for this the world's longest tour, which we did. <laughs> and uh, Usual Illusion 1 and 2 came out at midnight. And we entered the charts at number two and three. And we were like, what the hell? And there was this guy, Garth Brooks, that had shown up out of nowhere. And we're like, who's that? <laughs> and uh, so we entered at two and three, which really upset us. And uh, normally and then, people are people are normally okay with being number two or three, but not you guys. You you, no, went, you no. went the one and the two. Okay. Yeah. But we didn't know who Garth Brooks was and know that neither did anybody had told us about him. So the following week, we were number one and two. Those records went on to do very well in their own right. Some people go, oh, I like two better. I like one better. But if you look back and you were to take, I was talking to somebody the other day that took with the best of the best and made one record out of it. Yeah. Would it be better, you know, to just make that statement? But that it was what it was. And we became this bigger than life band. We went on to play stadiums. Everything became big and epic. Yeah. You know, so the uh I remember when it came out, Use Your Illusion 2 is my is my favorite. And here's the reasoning. When those albums came out, I couldn't afford to buy both. So my friend and I went at midnight, he bought number one, I bought number two. Uh-huh. Just because I heard that one first is probably the reason that I still like that one a little better. But yeah, and I think yeah. you could be mine was on two, I believe. Yeah, that it was. And I think that's why I wanted that one. So, <laughs> now, you play on every song except Civil War, which features Stephen Adler. And mm-hmm. I was always trying to figure out, was that track done and and they were satisfied with it so they didn't they didn't need you to give it a whirl? Yeah, that was the last track they recorded with Stephen. So they mm-hmm. kept it. And I, I believe they ended up getting what they wanted out of it and you know it it's it's a cool track on the record and yeah. they added it to the album I, I remember even discussing it with the guys they didn't come to me and go hey we're gonna we never re try to re-record it you know there is two versions to knocking on heaven's door i did the first version the second version okay the one on the album the, the one they ended up using on days of thunder which was the tom cruise film and that was the first track i ever recorded with guns and roses Can you use it any 
that was a single day that we went down to the AM studios and uh and we had the soundtrack done it was a david geffen thing again i believe yeah and someone said hey you know we have a soundtrack for this movie days of thunder and we're gonna we're gonna cut knocking on evan's door and that's when i went down and i think maybe it was a way to try me out in the studio to see what it felt like mm-hmm. it all worked out and then it, you know after that we went back and started on the records and that was added to the albums as well and had you done much studio work at this point or this was really or was this really your big introduction into being in the studio no i came up in the studio I, ah, okay there we go I used to work with like, if you look at my resume, it's kind of wacky. I mean, I, I worked with this producer named Michael Lloyd when I was in my early twenties. Oh yeah. He produced like uh Sean Cassidy and stuff like that. I played with Sean. I played with oh. Linda Carlisle. There you go. I worked with Solomon Burke. I had Gladys Knight and the Pips. Wow. I played with a lot of people. That's why I had this sort of like, diverse style that he could count on it but i liked my my backbeat my you know that's why when people hear me now with billy gibbons they're like wow i didn't know you could shuffle like that i didn't know you had that swing but my thing is oh yeah i always had to kind of morph my style as Mm -hmm. i went like if you go back and listen to the first tori amos album you wouldn't even recognize me because i'm playing almost like a drum machine with Joe Ciccarelli we did every drum individually there was no hi-hats or cymbals I recorded everything like crazy weird 80s shit that's incredible so I did a lot of studio work so when I got into GNR you know I I'd already that's why my drumming my tuning the sound of my drums Mm -hmm. I was like very into it you know one more question. When when Axel when Axel brings up that you're gonna release the two albums together, everyone just accepts his uh his vision. There was no there was no uh, discussion about it. We just all went, wow, what a crazy idea. And okay. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, it worked. So that's the thing. It worked. Yeah. Um, and yeah. then September 1991, you're on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. I assume that was a, a a dream that you had had since you were a kid. Well, yeah, I shot shot that with the great Herb Ritz in New York City, and he was that guy was a rock star. I remember, I remember being there. And funniest story about that, funniest part about that story was Izzy didn't have any clothes. He showed up just like, you know, just looking like Izzy, and he says to me, "Hey, Matt, can I borrow one of your jackets? Because I had like." suitcase with a bunch of clothes and stuff yeah you were ready you were ready to to be shot 
Yeah, I was always professional like that. <laughs> and uh, I go, yeah, I, what about this jacket? And he liked this, the jacket that he's wearing in the, sh- in the shot. And God bless Izzy, but he was, you know, he was a bit of a guy that maybe didn't take a lot of showers. <laughs> I remember he went to hand the jacket back to me and I went, whoa. And I went, I went, just keep it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a present from me to you, Izzy. I gave it to him. I always used to say to him, and I've said this to him before, I said, you know, you kind of remind me of the subway in Paris. That's what you smell like. Well, that's rock and roll, I guess. Down there. You've ever been down there. But. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And because of Guns N' Roses, you were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, somehow I got got in on that deal. I knew somebody behind the scenes. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think we know why you're in there. Um, it's like a secret society. I, I know. know. <laughs> and now a word from our sponsors. Hey, I want to give a shout out right now to U-Turn Audio. Now look, a few years back, U-Turn Audio sent me a free turntable and that got me back into vinyl. But ever since I got that turntable, I've been looking for some speakers that sounded to my ear the way my speakers did with my stereo when I was in high school. And I haven't been able to find those. Now I've purchased many speakers, like I'll, I'll order something on Amazon, try them and they sound like crap and they go right back to Bezos' house. I actually have his address, I send them right to his house. But U-Turn Audio actually makes speakers. And just this past week, they sent me a pair. The speakers plug right into the turntable, turn on the preamp, Turn on the speakers and you are good to go. These are bookshelf size speakers, ultra low distortion amplification meets classic speaker design and they are terrific. So look, go to uturnaudio.com, click on their speakers page. They come in black. I have the black. They come in white and they come in a wood tone and these things sound great. They're bookshelf size. So try these out, folks. I do not think you'll be disappointed. Now back to the show. You were born in Southern California, which is, uh, you know, usually everyone comes here from somewhere else and you've been here the the whole time. Yeah, I'm a native, which is so weird because sometimes you meet a native and you're like, really, you're from here? Right. No one can believe it. Yeah, because Hollywood was like this melting pot, you know, for all these characters from all over the place. Slash is a native. He grew up in, in Hollywood. Duff came from Seattle. Axel came from Indiana. Same right. with uh, uh, Dizzy Reed. I can't remember where the hell he was from. East Coast or something. But yeah, you know, I uh, I spent some of my formative years, as I talk about in the book, kind of sneaking out of Orange County and heading up to Hollywood in the early 70s, mid 70s, and getting that taste of the big city and rock and roll. And as soon as I got out of high school, I was like, you know, only 60 miles north, but yeah, was far enough away in those days. It felt a long ways away. Right. And you had to be there to be there. Yeah. You, you know? had to be there if you wanted to be in this business, in the music yeah. business. 
you had to be in it. You know, it wouldn't be any different if you came from Philadelphia or Orange County. Mm. You, know, you had to live there, be in the middle of it. That's what and, I did. And when did you start playing drums? What age? Right after I saw the Beatles. That was it. I was like five years old. And I got that small little drum set, uh, Sears drum set, and started banging away on that thing. And then that was like a kid's kit, you know. My, right. my brothers, I had two older brothers, and they were terrorizing me all the time. They hated it. And then I, I, I just stayed passionate about it. I remember my mom got me this little blue sparkle St. George when I was about nine. And then I, you know, I, I was taking music classes in school. My mother was a music teacher mm-hmm. and uh, just started. That was it. And had a little band, elementary school band. We used to play that. Uh, you know, I had a band called Liquid Earth. We all wore Hawaiian shirts. And uh, played like Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I remember I sang, I sang lead and from the drum kit. Because I remember there was this band called Rare Earth. And they said, the drummer can't sing. I said, Rare Earth's drummer sings lead. And I sing and play at the same time. Ringo would sing? Yeah. So I'm like, look at the guy in Rare Earth. He's up front, too. And... So I sang Helpless in the fifth grade talent show. So you knew what you wanted. Hey, helpless. Hey, helpless. So you knew what you wanted to do from five years old. And I assume since your mom taught music that she was on board with it. No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think it was more of a nervousness about, you know, um, me ex- escaping into Hollywood and maybe that particular time, you know, in the seventies, you know, the pot and the drugs and everything that kind of re- went with music. You know, mm-hmm. my favorite drummers were John Bonham and Keith Moon, right? They both died of alcoholism and, you know, right, they so were, if, they if were those my, are the guys you're worshiping, your mom might uh, have a, a little trepidation. They were heroes of mine. Yeah. And, uh, so I think she was more nervous for me. So she didn't encourage it. And she um, was sort of like, you know, I, I used to work um, in high school. I was working as a, um, as a chef. I would cook um, omelets at this omelet place. And my mom was like, you should be a chef. I'm going to send you to-. <laughs> I'm like, anything but being a drummer in a band. Wow. Yeah. So when they... Um, when my my stepfather and my mom took off, she uh, retired from teaching and he did as well. They got a boat and sold the family house. So I was on my own at 17. And she said, you can either come with us or you're on your own. And at that point, I moved in with a bunch of guys in a band in Newport Beach. And then I ended up to Hollywood not long after that. But yeah. Yeah. And but once the success came, then she was all on board, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think she understood it at first. I remember the first time I called her and said I joined this band called The Cult. And she that kind of scared her. It was like, a cult. It's like, what's that?
But once she started, people started telling her, you know, your sons and guns and roses, like then it clicked. Uh, and then, and then when she sees, picks up the Rolling Stone magazine, maybe mother, then, then she gets it. I got, I got five copies from my mother. Was it five or 10? Is that doctor? Uh, in that, yeah. What is that's a Dr. Hook song? I forget how many copies. I got five copies from my mother. On the cover of the Rolling Stone. Yeah. Now, Matt, you're giving us, uh, you're you're entertaining us with a little bit of your singing today. I do want to tell people that Matt Sorum does have two solo albums, 2004 Hollywood Zen and 2014 Stratosphere. Yeah. And uh, I got to mention the song The Sea on Stratosphere. I love it. Oh, Such man. a great tune. The time won't let me go. Lost in the undertow Let the water wash away my shame As the sea calls out my name Which break upon my lonely soul They bring me to the When I made that record, I was going through this whole like soul searching era where I was, you know, cleaned up. And I wrote that song, The Sea, about sort of the water as this metaphor for uh, a cleansing, a great cleansing, if you will. And uh, it meant a lot to me metaphorically with uh, spirituality, which I like to say I'm a spiritual guy. I'm a very mm -hmm. grateful guy. But that took a lot of work. And then around that time of making that record, I was really in that, you know, so you can hear that on the album. And uh, what type of a guy were you? Cause you're very soft-spoken. You're very focused. What kind of a guy were you when you were in Guns N' Roses and you guys are six months into a Use Your Illusion tour? What kind of a guy is Matt Sorum? Uh, exactly like I thought I was supposed to be. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I really felt that way. I felt like, the old expression, I got to wave the flag for rock and roll. I yeah. felt responsible. I felt like I have to enjoy every moment of this. I can't miss anything. I have to do whatever the band's doing, which is the drinking and the drugging and the scallywag and everything else that went into the energy of that particular unit. And I used to describe it much as being on a pirate ship. Yeah, it was like we are pirates and we play rock and roll and it felt right. It just I felt I had to dedicate myself to that particular attitude. And that's what we did. You know, you 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 guys were living it. We were 24 seven. And I used to joke. I used to say. Uh, people go, well, do you go out every night? You party every night? I go, well, yeah, because I'm in a different town and it's their party and we're just there. Right. And and there and I don't want to miss anything. And I said, I used to joke and say, "Well, it'd be great for the book. Yeah, and I'd have some crazy story, and you know, I'd write it. I would. I never wrote things down. I just remembered everything. People go, 
How do you remember everything? I don't know. I'm like Rain Man or something. Well, Keith Richards' book is over 500 pages long. I have no idea how that guy remembered stuff, but he did too. So, yeah, now, had a lot more life than me. <laughs> now, I have. I only have one more Guns and Roses question because I get there's so much other stuff that I want to talk to you about today. But here's here's my number one question about Guns and Roses that I I I don't understand myself as a music fan. Why aren't you in Guns and Roses? right now oh i don't know as paul as john paul jones would say maybe they lost my phone number yeah yeah <laughs> no, I, I think i think it's uh it's a different time it's mm-hmm. it's 30 years later axel's band he's very happy with his band he's axel's always been a really loyal guy i look back at axel go, you know what he was a loyal guy mm-hmm. You believe in him, he believed in you. And, and you know, he had those guys that were with him and then Slash and Duff rejoined and off they went. And that's basically how it went down. Yeah. When, well, yeah, when Slash and Duff came back, I was, um, I thought Matt would be back too, but. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. The newest thing you're afraid of. Is- you're making babies, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm holding up right now. This new Billy Gibbons album, Hardware. You uh you co-produced it. Yeah. You uh I think you co-wrote uh I don't know 12 of the 14 songs or 10 of the 12 songs and you yeah. play on the whole thing. This is a great album. So people go buy Billy Gibbons hardware. Billy F one of the most, one of the most uh, just the most fun I've had making music in so long because that guy, Billy Gibbons, is cool. He is cool. I it's I he's cool. There's he no other way in, to say it. So the pandemic hits, right? Mm-hmm. And Billy, I call him Billy because I'm really concerned about him. And obviously, we know he just lost his bandmate, Dusty. Yeah. And absolute travesty. So horrible about the, the, the years they spent together. But when the pandemic hit, I was like calling Billy every day going, are you okay? He'd be like, well, not really. I, I'm not in a tour bus. Because uh, he's been, think about it. He's been on the road for 52 years. 52 years. And and, and up until Dusty passed, just those three guys. That's right. Yeah. And so I called Billy. I go, we're going to make a record. He goes, what? I go, come out to the desert. I've got the place. So we went up to this cool studio called Escape above Pioneer Town in Joshua Tree area. And I said, we're going to live there and we're going to make music and you're going to cook breakfast. So Matt, I just want to stop you. I, I, just, just to clarify, this new hardware album. This was, this is your idea. This is you getting Billy out of his house to play rock and roll. This you, you started this ball rolling on this particular album. I'll lay claim to that. Yeah. So okay, basically, cool. I'll give it to so you. The title of the record is Hardware. Joe Hardy passed away about a year prior to me talking to Billy about making this record. And he's Joe the guy Hardy. who produced, uh, he produced the last two Billy albums. Yes, and ZZ Top back yes. to 1980. So Joe Hardy was Billy's collaborator, musical collaborator on everything ZZ Top to Billy Gibbons solo. Okay. And we're, me and Billy are close friends. We, we speak almost daily now and it's like, it's a trip, but I love the guy. And anyway... He opened up to me about what that meant losing Joe, not only as a friend, but as this musical counterpart. Mm-hmm. So he was 
nervous about taking the next dive into the studio. So I have this really cool studio in LA called Track Studios, which is now gone and moved to the desert. We're building a new studio there. I said, come over. We're going to try a couple of things. He goes, well, I got this one tune. It kind of sounds like a cross between Foxy Lady and Purple A's. I said, yeah, those songs always sounded a little bit alike. He says, but I got this song. And I'm like, cool, that sounds good. So we went in there and tracked it with my engineer, Chad Slozer, who ended up getting co-production on the record. And Billy had a blast. And what was that song called, Matt? Uh, that's one uh, S L M M B B. What is it? Yeah, I got it. I got it. S G L M B B R. What is that, that stand one. for? Oh, you have to ask him. All right. Some girls like my right. big bad ride. All right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like Anyway, we tracked that and he had a blast and he called me because I really enjoyed that. That Chad, he's a whippersnapper. And so I said, okay, let's take that and go to the desert. We brought another good buddy of Billy's name, Mike Florentino, comes from Nashville. And we hunkered down up there and we lived in this cabin, recorded the whole album in a garage. And if you watch the West Coast Junkie video, mm -hmm. That garage is where we recorded the record. That's the because I just thought that was like some old place you stumbled upon and you just set the cameras up and recorded there. But that's the place. That's it. We had the best time and he would wake up in the morning and make us a Mexican breakfast. And he'd say, I got to make a drive. I'm going to go down to the Walmart and I'll be back in two hours. And every day we would record something and it was so much fun. And we, we did that last summer and we put it out um, this year. Did four videos for like nothing. I, yeah. I got a buddy of mine to shoot them with one camera. 
people go, well, that's a really low budget video. And I go, well, it is. We made them yeah. for a thousand bucks. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. What do you want? Yeah. I mean, guys you know, out in the desert these playing. These days, it's not like November rain when we had a million dollar video budget. No. You know, yeah. I, I said, people go, well, that, that Billy Gibbons video looks kind of low budget. I go, it was like the hummus dip on the November rain video shoot. You know what I mean? I'm like, I'm serious. I'm like, so. Well, I, I'm glad you're working with Billy because, you know, uh, as our some of our veteran artists get older, the music's keeping them young. The music's keeping them alive. So you're you're doing good. Well, work. I mean, I feel like it's a it's a pretty stand up rock album for Billy because it is. He, he got he went off onto a Cuban thing, and then he the last record was more bluesy. And then when he when he put me at the helm with Mike and Chad, I was like, let's rock, let's. And then we threw down some surf music, and and we just lyrically got a little bit deeper like i i wrote the lyrics for vagabond man i wrote that about billy on the road a million miles and everything in between i've seen so many faces and the pleasure that they bring always left And uh, we all collaborated on that. And, you know, he, he was like, well, I don't know about that last verse, Matt. The Santa Fe has left the station is better. I'm like, I like that. All right. <laughs> so we, would, we would talk about that, but it was, it's really easy to write lyrics for Billy Gibbons because he's this, he's the epitome of, you know, the desert, cactus, rods. Yeah. You know, dust. Uh, you know, any and when we did Desert High, I don't know if you've heard that spoken word piece. Yeah, we we wrote everything that kind of we were in the surrounding of these these desert creatures and rattlesnakes, and of course we were very close to the Joshua Tree Inn where Graham Parsons passed away, and we started talking about that. And I'm like, Graham Parsons died down right down the street at Room Eight at, at Joshua Tree Inn, and he used to bring Keith Richards out here. And Billy said. He did? I said, yeah, and Donovan, the folk singer, and they all came here to feel the energy of the desert. So we started getting in these conversations, and that turned into Desert High. The desert dust fills your eyes. The rattlesnake shake takes you by surprise. The coyotes sing in the calm of night. The cactus water goes down like fire. The city of angels ain't too far from here. And when I need some sin, it's always near. The caliente warms my bones. And the valley of death is a skeleton's home. 
The desert toad takes me for a ride. The lizard king's always by my side. The hog and the eagle just want to fly. So it was great. It was Now, old school, living together, being with each other, no distractions to write a cool album. And in my opinion, I love the record. It's a great record. And I've, I've, been, telling, uh, I've been telling tons of people on this show and, and just friends in general to pick up this album. Thank you. What's it like for you uh, working with, uh, you know, you grew up as a kid. You're probably a ZZ Top fan. You certainly knew of them, even if you weren't a fan. And now you're now this guy's your friend and you're working with them. That's got to be kind of uh, kind of cool. Yeah, it's 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 crazy though. My 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 life's been crazy, and um, I'm just really honored that he asked me to be the drummer. Like he asked, he could have any drummer in the world he wants, you know. And then I think he respects me as a musician more than just a drummer, I guess, and a songwriter, and you know, um, and the process he had to learn to trust me more because, like I said, he had this Joe Hardy guy. Yeah. I was the guy that he knew long enough to be able to trust to yeah. start this new phase and process of his life. And uh, he's got an energy of a 20 year old, you know, and when Dusty passed and he called me and said, they're going to keep going. I said, well, what else are you going to do? That's what you do, Billy. You play guitar, yeah. you entertain people. I would say there's nobody else that I can really remember with the exception of maybe Lemmy and a guy like Slash that are just wake up in the morning and they're those guys and they're yeah. put on this earth to entertain. They just want to travel and play guitar and that's it. And then, and then it's not work. It's just fun. Yeah. I think the, the part that's the scariest for them is when they're sitting still or they're at home and they're, you know, on their couch trying to watch TV. Like it doesn't work for them. Like no. for me, I, I can do both. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be at home and, but I know these guys and I know Billy well enough to know that he's the happiest and most content when he's up on stage playing. Yeah, he needs that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, let's talk about your first project after Guns N' Roses, 1996, Neurotic Outsiders. Yeah. Produced by Jerry Harrison of the Talking Heads, 
Yeah. Um, I mean, people call it a super group because we know all the players from other big bands. John Taylor from Duran Duran, Duff from Guns N' Roses, Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols. And then it's released on Madonna's Maverick record label. I mean, yeah, this has everything going for it. Great players, great songs, great producer, great label. And this just didn't do what I had hoped it would do because I love this record so much. No, thanks. Well, um, that band came came together by mistake. We were we were an accident. Uh, we got together for a benefit of the, at the old Johnny Depp Viper Room okay. on Sunset, and we had so much fun that we ended up making a band out of it. I remember John Taylor calling me up, going, "Let's do this every week." <laughs> we started going down there. We did a we did a residency every Monday night at the Viper Room. Before wow. we knew, we had a line around the block. And there was this young A&R guy who used to stand in the front row every night. His name was Guy O'Siri. And Guy just signed up with Freddie DeMann over at Maverick to find bands to sign. He had signed, he had just signed Alanis Morissette, which that record took off. And yeah, gigantic. Crazy. And a band called Candlebox. And he uh, offered us a record deal backstage one night. And we were just like, what? <laughs> You know, we, were, we weren't even, let me shut this off. So we weren't even really a band and we were playing mostly like Pistols covers, yeah. and, you know, whatever, punk stuff and Iggy Pop. And all these people came up every week. Iggy sang with us, Brian Setzer, uh, Billy Idol. So we took this record deal, made this record, went up to uh, record plant Sausalito and recorded the album. And then Axel called me and Duff back to work, our day job. <laughs> Pistols got back together on 40 years. Yeah. Uh, John Taylor still had Duran Duran. So we did some short touring. Didn't do a lot of touring around those records, but still to this day, I'll have people come up to me going, I love those records. Yeah, it's it's great. I wish uh, it's hard to find too. I, I, I wish they someone would reissue this because it's, it's such a great yeah, record. It got reissued by a company that made CDs. Uh, through Rhino, I believe. Um, and I believe that there's a good possibility that we could re-release it on vinyl. I'd like to do that because I yeah, love vinyl. I have my vinyls, I have my vinyl site I'm involved in called Experience Vinyl. Cool. Yeah. All right. Your next major band after Guns N' Roses, I'm talking major because you guys did more than one album. You had the debut uh, went double platinum, and I'm talking about, of course, uh, Velvet Revolver. So it's uh, you and Slash and Duff, Dave Kushner, and then you get Scott Weiland because he's not having a great time with 
Stone Temple Pilots, or or maybe they're not having a great time with him, whatever the reason is. And uh, and you guys make a, a kick-ass album. It's so good. Mm, thanks. My one question, though, as an outsider, not in the music industry, is Axel seems to me like he could be difficult to work with. But talking with you earlier, it didn't sound like that from the what we've been talking about so far. And Scott Weiland seems like he might be difficult to work with at times, too. So did you guys have any trepidation going from Axel to working with Scott? Uh, well, if you watch the documentary, it's a documentary called The Rise of Velvet Revolver. It was on VH1. I believe you can find it on YouTube. Okay. Uh, we spent about a year trying to find a singer. And we, we auditioned all these guys. And we did audition a girl, too, named Beth Hart. Oh, I know Beth. Yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah. And it's really funny because Mike Clink brought her down and didn't tell Slash it was a girl. And she came in and just blew our brains out with her voice. And uh, we didn't go with Beth, obviously. So we were really struggling to find somebody that felt right and had everything that we were used to with Axel. You know, that swagger, that rebellion, that whole thing that we liked as a front man. Yeah. And... You know, in the book, I talk about Scott showing up late for the first big, you know, get this movie score and he's he's gone and he's he's an hour late. And it's absolute chaos and we're all nervous. And he comes in and just kills it. We get this massive deal for this film called The Hulk. And the next thing we know, we've got a, three record companies after us and we're getting flown to New York to meet with Clive Davis and Sylvia Roan. And I'm like, oh, shit. And the <laughs> song you're talking about is Set Me Free, which was on the uh, in the movie in, in Ang Lee's Hulk movie. Yeah, which was one of my first guitar riffs that I wrote for Velvet Revolver and yeah. talk about it in the book. And I had this riff and I remember being so nervous to play it for Slash. And I'm I go I have the thing and he's like, it's cool, you know. And then we have all these different versions of singers singing on it, right? And then Scott's came. Well, like I turn around to the band, I go, there it is. There's your guy. He's the one. And obviously it was, it started with a bumpy start. We had a bumpy start. You know, Scott was somebody we had to work with and get him. We were all really in good shape. Then we got ourselves cleaned up a lot. Everyone was, you know, I mean, man, I was eating egg whites and chicken breasts for about, I was skinny as a rail, better than I ever looked in Guns N' Roses because I was kind of bloated in those days. <laughs> Too much alcohol. 
but uh, we had this great run and, you know, we did really well on that first record and then some of the demons reappeared for all of us. We had some issues with, with all, everyone was doing too much again and the engine got big and the machine got, you know, weird. Yeah. And I remember, I remember the feeling of when I felt it coming, like things were, the train was going off the tracks. I'm like, oh, and the energy was changing. The vibe was changing. And, you know, we were, we were on email now. It was like the end of rock and roll fucking email. Well, yeah, we were, we were emailing like, you know, to each other. We couldn't speak to each other. I remember oh, being, I see what you're saying. Okay. You know, you guys weren't speaking we'd in person. Be in a room. We'd be in a room together and someone would bring a fax. Yeah. We'd be, hey, you guys got to check out this deal. And here it is. We go, what do you think? You go, yeah, cool. Let's do it. And then all of a sudden we're on email. No. Yes. No. I'm like, uh, oh, we got, it got, everyone got pulled apart again. And yeah. Shit got weird. So that yep. band started to kind of frazzle, you know, unfortunately. Yep. It was, it was, that was hard for me. Cause I was really like, we need to stick together. You guys, this is great. And we just couldn't, couldn't figure it out. That was a, that was a question I was going to ask you when Velvet Revolver came over. Did you, did you kind of feel like that was going to be your forever band? Did you think, Oh, this is it. I was hoping so. Yeah. Cause yeah. I had a house in the Hollywood Hills with a pool. <laughs> yeah. I bought when two. I bought two sports cars. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Well, when you when you have like stuff, you want to you want to keep your stuff when you have stuff for sure. Well, you know, you get the, the lifestyle isn't that bad. I I always were like, well, this is a pretty cool job. I like this job. Yeah. I'm I'm going, I'm making records, I'm touring, I'm staying in nice hotels, playing cool shows. And somehow, sometimes us musician guys just like to screw it up. I just don't know why that is, but <laughs> But yeah, it just it had it was like I always say to people, it was lightning in a bottle. Yeah. And it was a great time. We had a great run and Scott was fucking awesome. Everyone was great. It was a different energy than GNR. Yeah. It had, it, it had a different intensity about it. And the second album's great too. Libertad's great. She builds quick machines. And um, and that ELO cover, whose idea was that to cover Can't Get It Out of My Head? Uh Brendan O'Brien. cool and i remember we did it and brendan and me cut that he was brendan played acoustic on that because he had this real great rhythm rhythm sense very talented guy yeah and i remember we took it to new york to play it for clive Dave, clive davis and clive says we need to put that out as a single wow and 
He goes, that will cross over. He used to love to say crossover. <laughs> he said that about fall to pieces. He's like, you guys want to cross this over? Because Clive didn't like the video that we did for, for, Vel- for Velvet Revolver's Fall to Pieces. It was a little too dirty for him. Mm-hmm. He wanted to make it more mainstream. It's been long since you've been kept saying i want you guys to cross over meaning go really big yeah like you know boom now when you would hear that term back in 2004 crossover was it was that a negative thing for you guys to hear yeah yeah we were a rock and roll band we didn't want to be on k-earth you know we didn't give a shit but you know how many records do you want to sell he'd say Right. And was like, but we were very true to like keeping the integrity of where we came from. Yeah. So we, we fought to keep the video the way it was. And I look back at it and there's the scene where Scott's shooting up and he's in the bathroom. And it's like, was it necessary? Maybe not. I don't know. I mean, do we want to be uh, personify something that we really weren't? We were that band. And, uh, it was the way it was done. And he believed in that. And to this day, I just spent some time with Clive. Um, he was out in the desert down the street from me and we spoke about it and had a really good talk about it. And of course he wanted to see the band stay. He was very proud of that moment for his career. Yeah. No one thought he could sign a rock band like us and be as successful as he was with it. And I remember when we got the Grammy, I saw Clive and I went, we got the Grammy. I was like, Clive got the Grammy. (laughs) Clive knew people. I always used to say, Clive has like the bat phone. Remember the bat phone? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The red phone. Push one button. The the phone would blink and then he'd pick it up. He'd go, give him the Grammy. (laughs) All right. It's like, it's Clive. All right, Matt, we're going to wrap it up. I I do want to mention one other song that you play on that I just love. It's, it's, a, it's from a Sammy Hagar album. It's you, Sammy, Billy Duffy, and Michael Anthony. And I just love this song, Loud. <laughs> I love it. I, you guys, uh, I saw that video for that song. I was completely in love with it. And you guys look so cool together. So I just want to give uh, like a quick mention. Yeah. Oh, so great.
Sammy, Sammy sent me that. He goes, what do you think? I go, loud like a hurricane? Really? He goes, get Billy Duffy. I want to make it like the cult. And <laughs> I remember we all flew up to, uh, to Marin because Sammy lives up in Marin. Right, me, right. Me and Billy. And we went to Sammy's studio and recorded that. And we made the video somewhere in the valley. So cool. Yeah. He's all right. Let, yeah. Let's do some promotion. First of all, you can follow Matt on Twitter and Instagram at Matt Sorum. And his website is mattsorum.com. Pretty simple. You can pre-order this book right now, pretty much everywhere. Again, Double Talk and Jive, True Rock and Roll Stories from the Drummer of Guns N' Roses, The Cult, and Velvet Revolver. Matt, one more thing I need from you before we go. I always ask my, uh, my guests to pick a playout song. So you got to pick one song from your entire career that's going to be the playout song today. I know, tough. Let's just go Double Talk and Jive. Double Talking Jive is the name of the book, and it's the song that you picked. So that's what we'll do. <laughs> Matt, Easy. thank you so much for doing this. I really enjoyed talking to you. I really enjoyed hearing your stories. And I can't wait to get into this book and hear these stories in more detail. So everyone, buy this book. It'll be your uh, close out the summer, start the fall, reading some rock and roll tales. Matt, uh, again, congratulations on uh, your daughter. And good luck with the book. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take right, care. Take care. Bye bye. Double talking like this. Patience.